a parapraxis is a action that you do that's outside the authority of your ego. <laughs> it's Ooh. a it's what you do, and you go, "That wasn't me. I just burst out in the anger no, there. That's you. not me." You're like that is you. I'm not judging it, but I'm saying that you have to figure out yeah. what that violence is. Yeah. Otherwise, that will destroy someone else or yourself. Mm. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I am Scott, and this week I'm not with my pal Macy, who's back in Seattle, and I'm here in London. I have just been spending most of my time in Belfast at a retreat with one of my favorite living humans, Peter Rollins, who is a philosopher, um, teacher, and a very inspirational person in my life. And he puts on two retreats a year. One is called Wake, and that was in April. And I actually attended that. And if you check out our episode called Conversion, you can hear me sort of debrief some of the material I learned on that retreat. And this one uh, was called Spark, and it's about sparking creativity in your personal and professional life. And that's hopefully what I did. A lot of the stuff I learned this week will hopefully apply to No Small Thing and a bunch of other things I hope to be working on in the future. Um, But while I was there, I got a chance to interview Peter Rollins. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about him just in terms of who he is. I'm just going to read from his bio here. You'll hear us joke about in the episode um, me reading potentially from his Wikipedia. And he's like, don't do that. Just go to my website. So you can obviously check this out too. It's just peterrollins.com. But uh, it says, Peter Rollins is an author, philosopher, storyteller, producer, and public speaker who has gained an international reputation for overturning traditional notions of religion and forming churches, in quotes, that preach the good news that we can't be satisfied, that life is difficult, and that we don't know the secret. Let me read that last part because I think that's pretty key to why I think Peter is important to listen to and why might a lot of this stuff might be novel to some of you listening today. Maybe it won't be, but maybe it is. Um, he preaches the good news that we can't be satisfied, that life is difficult, and that we don't know the secret. <laughs> that's the good news. Um It goes on to say, challenging the idea that faith concerns questions relating to belief, Peter's incendiary and religionless reading of Christianity attacks the distinction between the sacred and the secular. It critiques theism, and it sets aside questions regarding life after death to explore the possibility of life before death. Whoa. Uh, It goes on, goes on, just a little bit more, uh, just a little bit more reading here. Peter gained his higher education from Queen's University, Belfast, where he earned degrees with distinction in scholastic philosophy political theory, and social criticism. So he has his master's degree in that, and he has his PhD in post-structural thought. And he's the author of many, many books. So check out his website and check him out on Instagram. He is uh, one of my favorite people. I'll just tell you a little bit about how he's influenced me. Peter's work has been so helpful to me personally in so many ways. If anybody has hung around me over the last few years, they know I'm always talking about his books and his YouTube videos and his podcasts. And uh, it's hard for me to just boil down one way that he has impacted me. But if you guys have listened to this podcast, you know that we talk about Enneagram and spirituality and Christianity. And I think the biggest way 
Peter's work has influenced me is it's really helped me to make sense of the role that Christianity plays in my life today. Um, so if you're not a Christian, you're listening, I think it's still his work and his thoughts still have a lot to say about um, the, the role religion plays in your life and helping you get a handle on that. But more specifically, um, the way it sort of psychologically fits into um, our daily life. Uh, that's a short way to put it. But man, when we were in Belfast, I got an opportunity to sit with Peter Rollins in a cottage, uh, a, a cottage house thing that was very cool with a fireplace. And I just got to talk to him. Oh, this cottage was a place where C.S. Lewis had his honeymoon with joy. And so wild, wild. I can't believe I got to do this. So one of my favorite living thinkers that has really influenced my life, sitting in a cottage where one of my other favorite authors, um, stayed for his honeymoon. And uh, we talked about something called parapraxis, which you'll find out more about in this interview. So I will stop talking now. And I am very pleased to share this interview with you. Here you are, the No Small Thing interview with Peter Rollins. Okay, we are here in uh, Crawfordsburn. Crawford's Burn, yes. Beautiful hotel. We're in uh, the C.S. Lewis Cottage. There is a warm fire in front of us. We have had a lovely dinner. Yeah. I'm sitting here with Peter Rollins. We're, we're overlooking a forest that inspired Narnia. Yes, supposedly. Yeah, yeah well, supposedly, <laughs> yeah. That's what we tell the tourists. But uh, yeah. but C.S. Lewis did spend a lot of time in this hotel. So you said he had his honeymoon yeah. here, and um, he entertained friends. This was a he was a Belfast man. Not many people know that C.S. Lewis was from Northern Ireland, yeah. And this was one of his favorite places. Yeah, I grew up loving C.S. Lewis, read all his books and knowing about him and never knew, I would have assumed, London. Yeah, yeah. Because he spent so much time in Oxford and Cambridge. Um, And to be honest with you, let's be honest, he did leave here when he was like 14 or something, but he came back like every year. He wrote his first book here, The Pilgrim's Regress. Here at this hotel or just in No, I could pretend that for this. Right where you're sitting, he wrote his (laughs) first book right there. Pilgrim's Regress. And his second book right in that corner (laughs) over there. (laughs) Oh man! But actually, he did write it close to here. Okay. He, clu- he wrote it around the corner from where I still live. Wow! Yeah, I mean, it is pretty trippy. I don't even know if this is meant to be an allusion to Narnia, but there is a big giant lamp post in here, There's and also, that isn't a joke. There is a weird, freaky photo, yeah, like what right is above that Peter's photograph? head. That is actually scary. <laughs> no, if you if you could actually, I'll post see a picture this on Instagram so yeah. people can see it. You want to see it because it is a, actually a bit freaky. Uh, that is a huge, weird <laughs> medieval lamp that's it's like hanging over my head. Yeah. Wow. It looks like it's from uh, Middle Earth or something i don't know yeah 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 um, and you chose this specifically you were like i want to interview peter rollins in ireland in the c.s lewis college you flew over here because you make so much money on this podcast <laughs> right. i hear the patreon's going the really door. well yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're uh, listening to this and you like the podcast you should support it that's yeah, good that's a good go. way of saying it yeah no we're not rolling in the dough with patreon yes, so yeah. yeah please yeah <laughs> um yeah so it's been really cool because I'll, I'll have said this in the intro, but we're here at a conference that Peter is hosting. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Peter's work. And it's always funny to think about, am I talking to the audience or am I talking to you? Yeah, yeah. that's weird. I'm standing right here. Like, oh, well, thank you. I don't know what to say. I'm blushing. Everybody, if you can't see me, I'm blushing. Um, but it was fun just telling you the concept of the podcast, which is still yeah. coming into uh, deeper focus for us. But this concept of... Uh, 
there isn't anything that's too small to analyze or too um, small or unimportant to dissect or yeah. talk about. And you had a really great idea of what to talk about, which we I think would even... Yeah. Can I say it? No, keep it a no. secret for no, a second. I, okay, yeah, we'll do right. a drum roll or something. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, but but you'll talk about it in a second, but I I think it's an even better explanation of what we're trying to do on the podcast. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. think if anybody's listening, people are listening. If you're listening tonight, I think... <laughs> Because uh, I've heard Peter riff on this a little bit before, and I, with the things you've talked about, and you'll, ex- I'm sure people experience this tonight, um, or whenever they're listening, I can always give it three or four more passes before I fully comprehend what's going on. Uh-huh. So even though I've probably heard a little bit about what you're yeah. talking about before, um, it'll be really refreshing Hopefully. to me to hear it again. Yeah, we'll, maybe we'll take a fresh angle on. Yeah, it, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So what is the topic? This is the drum roll. Okay. Well, you also said you were going to introduce who I am, or one. Oh, this is Peter Rollins. I'm going to I'm going to have already introduced you. Oh, oh so this is uh, yeah, the yeah. Magic I'll, of uh, I, yeah. I'll edit you in. I'll do a nice long intro. And this is just more setting the scene of where we are. Oh, see, now we're letting you behind the curtain. Right? Yeah. This is crazy. Okay, I like it. I like it. I'll well, try. I'll probably just read off your Wikipedia page. Oh yeah, do that. Well, check it first. I don't know what's what's on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well, when you ex- when you explain to me what the podcast was about, and mm-hmm. even just the title, "No Small Thing," mm-hmm. um, immediately uh, what came to mind is what's called parapraxis. Because, uh, you know, you told me no small thing means that there's nothing too small to analyze, to reflect on, that even the smallest thing, like like breakfast, we could we could look at my breakfast and that actually connects us with the world. It yes. connects us with farmers on the other side of the world. It connects us with truck drivers, with, with a whole system of economics, yes. with health issues. I mean, this is the... Uh, Without getting woo-woo, it's, this is not woo-woo, this, this, the interconnectedness of the social world, yeah. that we are woven together, I think Calvin says, uh, uh, in, in like, uh, what does he call it? Is it a silver thread? I, I can't quite remember the phrase, but we, we are woven together. You cannot lift up your phone without thousands of people having been involved. In fact, and this isn't what we're talking about, but uh, <laughs> if I can rant for a second. Please. Um, you know, th- we're cut off from that. When we buy a product, when we when we buy coffee or something like that, you know, it's just an object. It's kind of like, uh, it feels like it's loosed from the world. It's just floating there. Um, but actually, once you delve into it, that coffee will connect you with everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Absolutely. You know, if he was, it was a Carl Sagan who said, if you want to bake a cake, you have to begin by creating the universe. Oh, that's that's a beautiful. I don't, I don't know any of these <laughs> quotes, but that's a good one. We got, that's a good so already one. Yeah. We have John Calvin and Carl Sagan. This yeah, there yeah. you go. So it's got to, yeah, you got to start with the universe, yeah. you know. Um, so when you talked about this idea, um, it reminded me of Freud. Uh, one of Freud's really interesting contributions was to say that the very things that we don't look at, the very things that we don't pay attention to, that we think are unimportant, Mm. that we think are not an expression of who we are, they can be the royal road to our real beliefs and our real desires. That he once said, he said that, um, he says, if you really look at somebody, uh, you would think that it's impossible for them to lie. Because if they deceive you with their mouth, their tapping finger tells the truth, right? And a lot of his work was about how do we become conscious of how, first of all, we deceive ourselves in so many ways, 
right? You know, we say we don't believe in ghosts, but we're terrified at night <laughs> when we hear a tapping <laughs> on the window, right? We don't think our duvet cover will protect us from a knife attack, but if we think there's a stranger in the room, we put it over our head, right? <laughs> we have lots of beliefs that we're not aware of, that we, um, that we think are foolish, but we actually believe them. We have lots of desires that we are only dimly aware of and, and often completely unaware of. Like, for example, if I hate somebody who's rich and I so hate how they use their money, sometimes, not all the time, but occasionally, that's actually a disguised desire that I wish I was them. I wish I had what they had, right? So Freud said that it's the small things. In fact, the very sm the smallest of things that can tell us the deepest truths about our lives. And he called this parapraxis. Hmm. And, and so you're saying it's uh, it's like the the twitch in the eye or the sweat coming down your forehead. Yeah, the you, bad you know back, the, the 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 intestinal issues, mm -hmm. all intestinal issues you see are can be. So for example, you could be clenching your teeth at night, and while you think it's just a physical thing, I'm just clenching my teeth, and you go to the doctors, and maybe they give you a gum guard or something like that. But then you maybe talk to someone who's an analyst. And you begin to go, well, you know what? I really am angry at my boss, really angry, mm -hmm. but I can't shout at them because I'll get fired. So you have conflictual desires. One is to have a non-conflictual work environment and the other is to shout and scream. And so how that manifests itself is in at night you clench your teeth because mm. you want to speak, but you're stopping yourself from speaking. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's called a, a symptom is basically conflictual desires coalescing in um, some sort of manifestation. So that's what a symptom is. And when you, and you think the symptom's so unimportant, it's such a small thing, but it's actually not. It opens up and it tells you something about your desires and your fears um, that you can't tell yourself. Mm. It's, it speaks the truth that you cannot speak. I, I, I feel like uh, this is what we try to do is get people to be curious in general. I'm mm -hmm. trying to get myself to be curious. Um, and um, th this to me on the surface sounds so... Fun isn't the right word, but it yeah. just sounds so juicy. Yeah. Like the, the question, <laughs> how do we become curious about ourselves? Yeah. We're so... Like, and it, it makes sense because we, we hang out with ourselves all the time, right? right? So, so in a way, it's going like, why would I be curious about myself? Because I'm with myself all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and people think this, I think I've thought this, right? Is how can I be curious about myself? Because if, if I know anything, I know what I believe and I know what I desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, at first you think it would be the most idiotic thing to not to think that you don't know what you believe and to not know what you desire. But here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is actually we need to cultivate a curiosity about ourselves because perhaps we don't know what we believe and we don't know what we desire. And actually the trick is not to, you know, find the right belief or something like that or even deconstruct our beliefs. The first challenge is just coming to know what you believe. Mm. And I say like the, the consciousness is a defense mechanism against knowing what you believe. That, that's why you have to listen to your dreams, for example. Ooh. You know? Yeah. Like, you might, you might go, I love my mom. I love my mom. I go, why do you love your mom? Well, I visit her every day. I call her twice a day, right? I'm always going around. Now, that might be true. But I want to cultivate a curiosity. So I would say, well, that's interesting because sometimes there's a thing called reaction formation, which is you so think one thing that you go to the opposite. 
So maybe you're really angry with your mother, but you're, but you're guilty about that. And because you're so guilty about it, you're actually overly nice. The over-niceness is actually a, a sim, or it's actually a, it's a hint hmm. that maybe, you know, there's something going on. Now, of course, I'm not saying it is. I'm just wanting to cultivate a curiosity. And of, this happens often. It's like, I had a dream where my mother was dying. God, wow, that must have been very traumatic. Yes, it was terrible. And then you go, well, the, the funny thing is, it is your dream, right? Yes, you, and it's not not you. It's yeah. not not you. Yeah. That is you. Yeah. It's not your conscious self. <laughs> but then you ask, is there is there some frustration there with you? Say it was your brother. I, I saw my brother drowning and there was a glass between us I couldn't get to him. Mm. I love my brother. I was so distraught. Well, you can go, well, is there is there something? And then sometimes you're going like, oh, actually, you know what? I've really avoided confronting this. But actually, there is stuff from the past that I'm angry about. And then suddenly you realize this weird thing <laughs> that I am not transparent to myself, mm. that I am an enigma to myself. Mm. And, and cultivating a curiosity in which you actually look at what you do can lead to all sorts of insights. It's actually quite terrifying. <laughs> yeah. well, one of the phrases we've been using is without judgment and without excuse. Ah, yes, nice. And I think that is, applies this. I think um, me being exposed to a lot of your work, I think sounded very strange, beautifully strange at the beginning. Mm. Now I've slowly started to comprehend. I, sl- I comprehend like 60% of what yeah. you talk about. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to try harder. I want it to be 20%. I don't know. That's too much. Yeah. Um, but it's been interesting to me to sort of, and, and I don't want to sound pretentious or something, but I mean, when you've gone on a journey, the journey I've gone on with this sort of curiosity about the self mm-hmm. through a lot of your work um, is alarming to people sometimes because I'll, I'll say to, to about someone, I think I really don't like that person, mm-hmm. but I'm saying it in a way where I'm not indulging in it. I'm just curious about it. I'm like, I, I kind of want to like the person, yeah. but something about me is feeling resistant. I wonder what that is. And it's more of a reflection of me than the person. Yes. But, but well, often, so you're already yeah. making excuses for yourself, <laughs> right. which is going against your no judgments, no excuses. <laughs> right. Just say you don't time. like me. Just say you don't like <laughs> me. I can you. take it. I can take it, right? Yeah. yeah. But you know what? If you say that to me, yeah, you say you don't like me, mm-hmm. for example. Um, in, a, in the right environment, I'm going like, yeah, I understand that you're saying that because you're just being honest. You're being honest about how you feel. Yeah. And actually by speaking it, you can begin to dissipate it. Yeah. That's the trick. By yeah. bringing it in. There's a beautiful line in the Bible that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Yeah. And so it's a very profound line because we do not want to know the truth. We don't want to know the truth of our desires. We do want to know the truth of the unpleasant parts of ourselves. We really want to hide it. And this idea that if we come to know the truth, bring it to the light of day, we go like, that's the worst thing you could do. Don't bring it to the surface. Repress it. Push it down. But this counterintuitive thing, and it's in psychoanalysis as well, is that actually by, by speaking the truth, it, it dissipates mm. and you get to somewhere better. Something opens up. It's a profoundly counterintuitive and beautiful idea. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, it's, it seems uh, one of these things that Jameson Webster said when we were at Wake was that psychoanalysis is by its very nature antisocial. Oh, yeah. And so it seems like these practices or this way of sort of acting out in the world can oftentimes be 
somewhat antisocial. Yes. It's not the norm. Like the norm seems to be put on a happy face. Yes. Go along with the status quo. Don't rock the boat. Yeah. And, and, and we can understand that because I'm not right. We all know people who share too much on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Or on Instagram, or whatever. Like there is a certain sense in which we'd never get anything done. Yeah, if we right. were, if we were, you know, uh, bringing the truth to the surface constantly. I mean, I'm amazed. I used to live outside um, uh, this building site. They were building some something, and there was all these people working on it, and it always fascinated me how it happened, because every person working on that site had trauma hmm. and pain hmm. and difficulty. They've lost people. They are struggling with their own relationships, their own fears, their own. Uh, demons of sorts and yet they can build a building it's quite beautiful and it's quite and True. when you when you see that it's like okay yeah of course we have to somehow and sometimes and often not confront the truth yeah but we need deserts in the oasis of our lives we need dry quiet places in the oasis of all the noise where we can confront the truth and it, and, and even and it is antisocial because here's the thing I've seen signs you know these signs in some buildings that say all are welcome you see this in churches for mm-hmm. example all are mm-hmm. welcome that fascinates me because of course that's not true right that's that's an ideal maybe but often when you say that the, my first question is I wonder who isn't hmm. right hmm. because like it's such a powerful statement all are welcome whenever I see a, like whenever I see someone who is like a, you know a hundred books on apologetics. I go, okay, they must be full of doubt. Because mm. why else would they have 100 books of apologetics? <laughs> why would they be obsessed with it, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, they must be riven with, with a certain uncertainty that they have not been able to make peace with. Yeah. Not always, but that's often the case. And when, when, when I say all are welcome, whenever I say I'm really happy, like if, you, if I'm really happy, I don't need to say it, right? <laughs> but if I'm always putting on Instagram that I'm so happy and how great a life I have, Often, it's not that I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to convince myself. Yeah. There's something going on that isn't good. So in the same way, when I see a sign that says, all welcome, the first question is, who is not welcome? Hmm. Who are they? Who, why are you having to be so strong in that statement? We all want to be welcoming. I would love to see that. We want to be a place that welcomes all. We are learning how to welcome ourselves. We're learning how to welcome the other within us, the other within you. We're, you know, that that's that's very honest, right? But it's the declarative. I go like, whoa. It's like they're all trying to overcompensate or something. Yeah. Yeah. And we all do it. And I that's why mission statements are a weird thing to me, because what they create is increasing repression. Mm-hmm. Because when you say that, you can't cope with the, uh, you have to repress who's not welcome. You have to hide it from yourself. And everybody knows who's not welcome. It's mm. not said. It's mm. never said. Yeah. Right? It's only when you step over the boundary you realize who it is. You know, um, <laughs> But everybody knows, but nobody says. Just like in a, in a relationship where there's dysfunction, there's an affair or whatever, but where sometimes everybody knows, but as long as no one says it, the crisis isn't seen. Now, the crisis is already there, but it's not being manifest. It comes out in, you know, uh, other ways, hmm. right? In bad backs and arguments and tears over small things, whatever it is. It always, the symptom always arises. But in the same way, the declarative nature of it is, is often, and not always, but if you have a community, any community, that has a declarative, this is who we are, 
kind of go, okay, I wonder if that, if you're having to say it so strongly because that's not who you are. And there's no judgment. There's no judgment there. But, but let's try and be open and go, who isn't welcome? Mm. And why aren't they welcome? Is it, is it a good thing they're not welcome? <laughs> is it yeah. a bad thing? Is, so that, that's, it. that's looking at the small things. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, your your uh, Instagram handle. You say uh, selling existential despair for cash. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you're just being right out there with it. Yeah. You're, you're not you're not saying yep. I'm trying to change lives. I'm trying to welcome everybody. <laughs> yeah, bringing the bad news. And the reason why I say that so it's a little you know funny little throwaway thing. Selling nihilistic yeah. despair for cash. Yeah, yeah nihilistic despair. Yeah, but it's um it's actually a very important thing. Uh, a lot of my work, and you know this, but mm-hmm. for your listeners who don't know my work, um, one of the things I talk about is how the good news that you can be happy, that you can be have the answer, that you can be complete, is actually terrible news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes you more anxious. It makes you more rigid. Um, it, uh, it makes you more unhappy. And actually, weirdly, the bad news, that life is difficult, that we have doubts and insecurities and anxiety, the bad news that we have to accept that is actually good news. Mm. Uh, as, and this is the, what's called dialectics in philosophy, but it's where, you know, it's this idea of if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. It's like in order to go into the light, you go into the dark. This weirdly, the more you embrace the fractures of your being, the, the less power they have over you, the less that yoke the less heavy that yoke is. And the more you try to avoid those parts of you, the heavier that yoke is. Now, here's the trick, right? If if you can't look at the darkness, if you can't look at the fractures, if you can't bring the truth that, that you have in your heart to the surface, you can actually live okay. Hmm. You can avoid that. But someone pays. Uh, someone has to pay the bill. Oh, good point. And what happens is you then put all of that stuff that you can't look at, it's called scapegoating, you then blame someone else. You externalize your own internal antagonism. So something we talked about today, but is is often when someone says, people think this, what they're saying is, this is what I think of myself, but I haven't been able to see. It's not all the time, but often, not, to be honest, nine times out of 10, <laughs> if someone says, oh, people think that I'm an arrogant asshole, you're you like, you're an arrogant you animal. think you're an arrogant <laughs> asshole and you're not, yeah. but you think you are. And, but you haven't been able to get to that point because the truth mm. is somebody might think that, but if they thought that and you didn't think it, you wouldn't care. Right. Yeah. So oh, it, s- it seems so right and true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you suddenly you're again, that's where I'm saying the small thing actually leads you to see it, have a great insight into yourself. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so that, what, why are we talking about that? Why are we talking? Why are we talking? Uh, nihilistic despair? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's this beautiful thing where if you're able to embrace your doubt, the complexity, and the ambiguity of existence, and do that in a very mature way, by the way. I think it's a very, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. And the irony is to become ignorant requires study requires hours of walking forests and thinking. Mm. It requires sitting by the fire, sipping a drink and reflecting on the nature of reality. Strangely, the deeper you go, the more you encounter the strangeness of reality. And this is not just, again, in, in some sort of philosophy sense. This is also in mathematics. Uh, it's also in physics. It's also in biology. And we might talk about those examples, but I'm interested in those disciplines and in physics. 
when you come to wave particle duality, when you become to superpositioning, you come to see that there's a certain antagonism in reality, right? So this isn't just like abstract kind of, you know, like mysticism. But if you don't come to terms with that, then someone else will carry it. And that's what scapegoating is. It's someone else carries the lack that you can't look mm. at in yourself. They carry the, the rupture. So someone always pays for your inability to confront yourself. Someone always pays for your inability to confront the truth. It's one of the things, I, I wonder if you have this thought sometimes in this line of work where we're talking about theology, philosophy, that oftentimes it doesn't seem to be for a certain type of successful person, meaning um, they uh, seemingly don't need it. They've reached the top, they have the resources, they have the money, but I think to your point, what you're saying is now they are, at the end of the day, potentially scapegoating other people and harming other people in their own life, and to get somebody to care about this is sort of to appeal to their um, desire to be moral or empathetic or, or realize yeah. or embrace the impact they're having on other people. Yeah. But some people don't need to do it in the sense that they'll be fine. They'll, they'll always be fine. Yeah. But there's people in their wake that are getting hurt. Yeah, and then coming back to the very first thing I said about breakfast. If that's true, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if that's true that our breakfast connects us with everything, mm -hmm. um, if I cause violence to the people around me, that is ultimately destroying me too. And again, mm. because these phrases are thrown around in very kind of, uh, kind of uh, ethereal senses, I want to be concrete about this. Mm. I want to say that it's not, oh, in some kind of like next world, you'll suffer. It's that, you know, you'll, you'll push people away from you. You'll hurt people that could love you and that you could love. You could destroy the environment that you inhabit. Mm. It, it does come back to bite you. Uh, and so it's almost like, and Simone Weil is very good on this. She almost has this, this idea that, well, she talks about gravity. Mm -hmm. and, and gravity for Simone Weil uh, is a little bit like just the laws of nature. Gravity is that things fall on the ground, that, that, that planets orbit. But gravity is also uh, hate repaying hate. Fire, uh, breeding fire. Uh, violence, breeding violence. It's gravity, this is what happens. And we pass the violence around when we can't look at the violence within ourselves, when we can't confront that with the ghosts that we are, because we're all haunted houses. Talk to, you've heard me talk about this, but we're all full of ghosts. Right? Yeah. A ghost is the presence of an absence. In other words, something that's, that's present, that's gone. So you're not thinking about a person but they're there within you. There's things that are within you that you're not even conscious of. We're all, people you've hurt, people who have hurt you. And if we don't confront them, the violence is passed on mm. and it's passed on, it's passed on. And eventually it hits us on the back of the head like a circle. <laughs> um, but if we're able to bring the violence into the light of day, like you're saying where you're honest and go, I don't like you, right? I'm pissed off with you. I'm really angry. In fact, I'd like to kill you. Right, and you go like you can never say that. It's funny in the Bible, it's in, in in Proverbs all the time. I pray that my enemies' kids will be smashed against rocks. Right, you never hear that prayer in the church. <laughs> yeah. But it's like um, it's like because you go like you can't say that, 
Sadly, it's the very thing you have to say if it's in you. Yeah. And you say it not because it's what you want. There's one sort of sense you say it so you can get beyond it. But if you if you do do that, if you can say that, like um, what was it, Bruce Coburn, who had a song "If I Had a Rocket Launcher," mm-hmm. and he talks about how he sees this injustice and these these military helicopters that are killing innocent victims, and he says, "If I had a rocket launcher," and the lyric is, "Some son of a bitch would die." Mm. And he was asked about it because he's a peace activist, mm. one of the most famous peace activists. And he said, yeah, listen, I had to say that because mm. that's how I felt. He says, do I want a rocket launcher? No, he said, he said, you know who the kids are in that helicopter? They're kids who are 17, 18 years old, who have been conscripted, who are being part of a violent system. And he says, I said that line because I meant it. But as I said it, I moved beyond it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, gosh. So, yeah. We don't have a release sometimes in our culture for, yeah. for that. And that's why, like you said, you're, the whole point of this is it manifests itself in other ways. So we can we can pretend and smile and, and keep up appearances and stuff, but then violence is going to yeah. seep out. And um, So the only way of getting rid of the violence yeah. is, in a sense, lying it to surface. <laughs> that's yeah. the irony, yeah. you know? Uh, well, um, we, re- we interviewed uh, a person I've done a lot of work with over the years, is uh, Dr. John Perkins, who's done a lot of work with racial reconciliation. And mm-hmm. he has a story, and we interviewed him recently, about um, being tortured within an inch of his life in a Birmingham jail, wow. and uh, or Mississippi. And um, uh, he always says, he's, I mean, I've heard him say this a million times, he's been saying it for 50 years, you know, mm-hmm. if I would have had a grenade in that yeah. moment, I would have pulled it and killed everybody in that room. Now, he says that because he realized in saying that and being honest about it that he was confronted with his own, what he would call sin or darkness, and then he can move beyond it and start to heal and uh, move towards yes. peace. But he admits what was going on inside of him. He's yeah. like, oh, yeah, while they were beating me, I just felt so much peace and for forgiveness and mm. prayed love and blessings yeah. over them. He's like, I wanted to kill him. Yeah, you know? and nobody, and nobody... I don't think anybody in their right mind would say anything but yes, of yeah. course you would. Yeah. And the beautiful thing then about what he's saying, and this is actually connected to Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and where we are now, is we, ha- we have had, I mean, it's incredible. We, Northern Ireland has, is probably the most successful peace process that has ever happened in the modern world. Hmm. In it's overlooked. Yeah, I mean, People you know, we talk about South Africa all the time. Oh, yeah. Time and actually, South, South Africa is in a bit of a state in many yeah. ways in their peace process. For Northern Ireland, we have had incredible success. And in 1998, Good Friday Agreement, mm. we signed on Good Friday, all the paramilitary organizations, the British government, the Irish government, we, we, we made an agreement and the paramilitary organizations disarmed, mm. like disarmed. Mm. They didn't mm. just cease fire, they gave up their weapons. And the interesting thing about it, and uh, you know, we could talk all night about this, <laughs> but is that um, there was legitimate... There was legitimate anger on all sides. People died. In fact, so many people died. There was legitimate reason not to forgive. Nobody would have said you should forgive. You know, it was legitimate reasons. But what happened is all sides just went, you know what? Splitting is happening. Splitting is where when you go through a lot of pain, you you break the world into goodies and baddies. Mm -hmm. And you see yourself usually as innocent and the other is guilty. But you can do it the other way around called Orientalism where you're guilty Mm. and the other is innocent. Mm. But it's splitting the world into a substantive other who's right and then you who's rubbish (laughs) Um, or the other who's (laughs) rubbish. And the thing about splitting is it's a legitimate uh, response to suffering. When you break up with someone, they're terrible and I'm innocent. But eventually that defense mechanism causes more trouble than it solves. 
And the only way you're going to move on is if you can make peace with that and make peace with the other to some extent. Mm. And maybe even to the point where you can shake their hand in the future and go, oh, that was a mess. I hope you're doing well. I really mean it, right? Mm. And then you can move on. And what happens is in a situation like Northern Ireland, where the violence was so powerful, there was courage among a whole pile of people to say, it's not about right or wrong. It's about we need to have novelty. We need, and novelty is important, is that when you... Like, basically, we need conflict, not war. A war mm. is when you're not able mm. to have conflict. You Ooh, just want to kill the that's enemy. That's the takeaway of this whole thing. Uh, yeah, is that conflict, right, yeah. not war. That's so good. War. Yeah, it was actually a comedian called Dylan Moran said it. It was a throwaway line once, oh, and I loved it. He says, gold. war Yeah, war is where you want to kill people, yeah. but conflict is when you're going to sit in the room and fight it out mm. and have all that nastiness. And in Northern Ireland, there, we went, we're going to have conflict, not war. And in conflict, novelty arises, i.e. new possibilities for peace, new possibilities for a way forward that nobody could have imagined. Mm. But it's only when you are allow yourself to enter into that that it can happen. Oh, it sounds so lovely to think of it that way. Maybe not just war, but um, maybe the opposite of war would be divorce. You oh, know, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Conflict or divorce, conflict or war, um, but conflict or talking it's yeah. so funny because uh, so many of the things we're talking about tie in with a lot of the things we talk about in the podcast is we've essentially followed the book why would why do i do that and oh, gone yes. through each defense mechanism that you've talked oh, about brilliant. So oh so there's like, actually oh brilliant there's a, so people there's a will know, people ah. know splitting. go go back and listen to our splitting episode oh that's great yeah. people can go back and i uh, fill yeah. this in brilliant but we also talk about this cartoon called steven universe i was mentioning this to you and to me it I would have, I would not have watched it if it wasn't for my own kids. Mm-hmm. I needed to find something fun and interesting to watch with my own kids. This was getting good reviews, and um, I've come to say, it, I love Narnia, I love Harry Potter, mm-hmm. but to me, this narrative has superseded those. I think it's better, yeah. and for kids to watch, and, and essentially, Stephen's superpower is empathy and his ability to talk things out with people. Oh wow! And there's Sorry, all yeah. these characters in his life that have all these superpowers, and oftentimes they're working, but. As a last resort, they're like, send Steven in, and, and he'll go into this big villain and just talk it out. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's brilliant. Empathy. It's really that's cool. brilliant. And this, they just did a movie, too, and uh, it was like he's reached this super level of power. He's 16, and he's got he's like indestructible now, but for this episode, he gets all his powers taken away, and so he's stripped down to basically needing to talk it out again. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's so good. That's so good, because there's, there's such a deep truth to that, yeah. is that... That, and, and Batman gets into this, which is like a Batman in one way creates the supervillains. The mm. superheroes and supervillains need each other. Right. Just like in politics, we often need our enemy because uh, our enemy is a way of externalizing our own conflict. So we can unify around hating some group. And it's all sides. It could, you know, whatever group that you think, if we could get rid of them, the world yeah. would be great. That's yeah. the scapegoat mechanism. And so we get into this scapegoating and um, uh, this, this, it's about trying to break that mechanism mm-hmm. down. And so this superpower is amazing. It's like, <laughs> actually, if there were superheroes in the world, the world would be a nightmare. It would <laughs> right. collapse. Right. The true superpower would be somebody coming in like Desmond Tutu or something yeah. and going like, yeah. let's talk. That's the show, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The talking cure. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I, I never, I've never heard of this show, but <laughs> I love so it. Good. I love it. You could just yeah. watch the movie. It's about... 90 minutes and I think it it stands alone but it's oh. so good um, yeah I think I think there's a show out 
right now that has like superheroes as villains. I forget the name. Oh the yes, I've watched a couple of them. Yeah. I've enjoyed them. I, have, I actually have a friend who's in one called Umbrella. Okay. Uh, a guy Robert Sheehan, who's an Irish actor, and that's great. And then there's Good Boys, which Good is Boys. the other one. Yeah, which is yeah. really interesting. So I, I think really our culture is really playing around with that idea. Like, oh, would superheroes yeah. actually be beneficial to society? That's it true. That's like that's it. the the yeah that's the thought experiment, yeah. which I love. There's a real interesting mm-hmm. complexity, and even with something like Joker, there's also are the supervillains. Like what constructs them and how villainous and the super like there's all of this. It's a it's a beautiful making the world more interesting is important. Hmm. Um, hmm. That's what I meant. Even when I looked out my window and I'm looking at people building a building, I'm going like, it's not about making the world more complicated than it is. The world is very complicated. It's just uh, trying to trying to do justice to the complication that hmm. it is that people are more complicated. Today, for example, we sat down and um, I asked a question. It was something like, uh, something like, uh, what obstacles do you put in your own way? Uh, and what are those telling you about yourself? And we had about an hour where people started expressing stories of their lives. And it was beautiful because it reminded you that everyone has a story that's beautiful. Now, I, I think who we are is what we do. And I think there's a lot of violence in the world. And I don't think it's just here. Like, if I hear the story of Hitler, then every that's the true person. But um, because I think uh, the truth of who we are is in in, in, our, in how we act mm. in the world. Um, not how we consciously act. It's how we act behind the power praxis, how we act when we... Uh, and aren't in control of our lives. That's what power praxis means, by the mm. way, because para means outside, praxis means practice. Mm. So a paramilitary is a is a pa- is a military that's outside the authority of mm. the military structure. Mm. A para praxis is a action that you do that's outside the authority of your ego. Ooh. <laughs> it's Ooh. a it's what you do, and you go, "That wasn't me. I just burst out in the anger <laughs> oh, there. That's you. not me." You're like that is you. I'm not judging it, but I'm saying that you have to figure out. Yeah. What that violence is. Yeah. Otherwise, that will destroy someone else or yourself. Mm. So, but it was beautiful today because it reminded me again that that um, you know there's just a life is more interesting than we sometimes see. Like every scientific, yeah. every scientific um, insight, uh, most of the big ones are where somebody sees something that everybody's seen, and they go, "That's weird." Like whenever Newton goes like, <laughs> yeah. why do things fall? Like everybody just sees that. Nobody That's thought it was weird. Is. That's just how it is. Yeah. Like, like we, we're so surrounded by weird things. Like, like, and this is why I'm critical of, you know, cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology because so evolutionary psychology, you know, which has got some interesting things to say, but it sees human beings as having instincts mm. like, that are like animals, mm. right? Animals have instincts. Instincts basically have a discrete object like uh, food or shelter. They are satisfied when the animal has shelter, they relax, and they're in the service of life, hmm. right? But uh, human beings have what's called drives, and drives are like instincts, but quite different. A drive can be for anything, right? Not just for discrete things, food, shelter, mating. They can be for stamp collecting. A drive is never seated. We, you know, when we, if, if our drive is for a house, we want a bigger house. We want two houses, five houses, and extensions, you know? Mm-hmm. And it often kills us. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm saying is we're surrounded by, there's an ethical theory called utilitarianism. 
And it makes perfect sense. Utilitarianism is where it's obvious we want to maximize our pleasure and we want to minimize our pain. And that makes perfect sense. If I didn't know the universe and I came to the universe, I'd go, utilitarianism will be true. We want to maximize our pleasure, minimize our pain. And most creatures that I would see would do that. Mm. But then I come across a really bizarre creature called humans. And humans often sabotage themselves and don't go for their own pleasure and knowingly do things that they know will give them a heart attack, that they know will break off their friendships, they pers- uh, that will destroy their marriage. And it's like, oh, that's weird. Let's be curious about that. Let's not take that for granted and go, oh, that's perfectly normal. Yeah. That's really bizarre. <laughs> and that cultivating that curiosity brings us to deep insights. It does. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, I, I can't ma- I can't remember. I mean, um, I can't tell you how many times people have said in my life where I've questioned something and be like, that's just normal. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I was reading a book this morning called Brainstorming, and this is a book written for teenagers. So it's like a, inside the, the teenage mind. Uh, yeah. And I forget the author. I wish I had the book in front of me right now. Um, but um, it's really cool because the guy who wrote it is writing it for educators and teenagers so they can read it alongside each other. Like both can be reading it and dialoguing. And so he has a chapter that gives a lot of insight. And then he has another chapter following each chapter that is a, a essentially some practices, some practical practices. Um, so I was only in the second chapter today, but he's giving this advice to teenagers and saying, essentially, I, I, I wish I could remember the acronyms. I wish I had this right in front of me, but he was, he was essentially encouraging teenagers to explore their inner mind. Just a lot, a lot like mindfulness and uh, to begin to cultivate curiosity and empathy for their own thoughts and selves. And he's saying, essentially, what this will help you do is eventually be able to turn that and do that for other people. Mm. Uh, um, but it's essentially, in my mind, it's essentially saying the same thing, that mm-hmm. as, as we begin to sort of unmask or uncover or find the ghosts in our own house, um, we'll be less alarmed, maybe, yeah. less spooked, less freaked, and yeah. then we can also be more curious with others too. And when somebody lashes out or does something, we're going to say, Oh, you're a crazy person. What are you doing? And we're like, Oh, I wonder what that is. Yeah. You know? Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Peter Rollins. I hope this stuff about parapraxis is helping you in some way. And I just want to say it only gets better from here. Uh, Just a few quick things I want to say about ways that you can support the podcast. One is you can write a rating and review on iTunes. Super helpful. Two, you can post about this episode or past episodes that you really like on your Instagram stories. That is really helpful to get the word out to your friends and to spread the word about the podcast. And finally, you can support us on Patreon. I don't know if you know this, but Macy and I are both very interested in making this a long-term career sort of thing. And um, if we can monetize this podcast and make money off of it, that would be a huge thing. We put a lot of work into these episodes every week. This, this episode in and of itself is a great example of that. So if you think it's worth a dollar or $5 a month or just a one-time gift, you can head on over to patreon.com and look us up at No Small Thing and um, donate some money or commit to a monthly donation. That would be super helpful, super appreciated. But other than that, if you just give us a rating review, or share about this episode on your Instagram stories, that would be super helpful as well. That's all I have to say right now, and now I'm pleased to get you back into this awesome uh, interview with Peter Rollins. 
It reminds me of this book I was reading today uh, called Brainstorming, and I forget the author, but I'll put it in our show notes or something like that. Do you have show notes? That's very pro. Yeah, we have show notes. We don't have show notes. I'm sure only like three people look at show notes, but we we Uh, do it as a practice. That must be 100% because you said only three people listen, so that's 100% of people listen. 100% of people check out the show notes. Um, Yeah, this book is called Brainstorming. I'm a youth pastor, so I read stuff like this. and. because you said it's for teenagers. Yep. Is it for teenagers or to, or to understand the teenage it's mind? It's both. He wrote yeah. it, the foreword, he says, this is written so that a teenager could read this and understand themselves, but also educators and parents and others so they can understand teenagers better. And so he has these practical chapters where he says how to cultivate the things that he's doing. And he says, he gives a lot of really great acronyms. One is called SIFT. And it's like uh, sensory, you know, emotions. I forget exactly what it stands for, but he helps people... Look inside. He's a terrible speller. Yeah. If, if the second one's emotions, yeah, and it's not emotions. I forget what it is. It's a, it's a great yeah. uh, so, four things to check in on in terms yeah. of yourself. But um, uh, so anyways, yeah, he says as you begin to look inside and cultivate a curiosity for your emotions, your interactions, your uh, your uh, um, reactions to things, it will help you be able to do the same thing for others. Yeah, and it's a skill that you can pick up. And I, I, I was saying earlier, yeah. it reminds me of what you say about ghosts. Because I yes. remember you said like Scooby-Doo, oh, yeah. you know, they always, they find the ghost and at the end they unmask the ghost and realize, oh, it's just this person down the street. It's not a real ghost. Oh, yeah. And there's a freedom and maybe even a humor in that, you know. And, um, and so I, I, what he was saying essentially is as, you be, as you're able to do this for yourself, you won't, it seems, and I think I've experienced a little bit of this in my life, in, in part a lot because of the things that you've said, but... Um, you're less spooked or freaked out when you see these things happening in other people. Yeah. You can be more curious, more in, interested, more intrigued. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. Here's a, because this can start to sound abstract. Mm-hmm. So, right. how to cultivate a curiosity about your life. Um, an example just I happened to me recently. A friend wanted to go for coffee with mm. me and suggested a coffee shop. And we both live in a very, very close and uh, they suggested this coffee shop. I looked it up and oh, it was... this is a great story. Oh, oh you're like, yeah, all right, yeah, I told this today, yeah, today did I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it was about an hour away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I drove there and I was like, oh my goodness, the guy wants to meet me an hour away from where we live. And I get there, I park the car and I go into the coffee shop. Now, usually I would just buy a coffee in a coffee shop. Uh, but this time I was like bought some food and I spent about $20 and stuff. And as soon as I had paid for it, I had a thought. And I was like, hold on. I wonder if there's a coffee shop that is closer to where we both live that, uh, that has the same name. And I look it up. And of course, there is. There's one that's five minutes away. And uh, uh, normally, you would just like ignore that. It's a small thing. It's like, oh, that was me being dumb. Mm-hmm. But there was a couple of anomalies. It was weird. It was like, hold on a second. First of all, why did I realize it whenever I bought all this food? Why did I not realize it at the time or halfway there or even when I got there and then I could have gone back? Why was it when I'd really just bought all this food and I'd parked the car? And I thought to myself, is it that I don't want to see him? And then asking that, I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? I think there's a little bit of tension in our relationship. Mm. And so I was able to text him and go like I did this stupid thing and I made a joke and I said, like, maybe uh, maybe I didn't want to see you, you know, and that opened up the possibility for us to talk and we were able to have a really good conversation and Mm. chat everything through. It Mm. wasn't a big deal, but this truth. Or another example, a friend of mine who went through a divorce and he has uh, has three kids 
And every Thursday he goes to the house of his ex and he reads to them, puts them to bed. Mm. And one week he forgot. He was working late, very stressed, completely forgot to go home. And he was like, oh, I hate myself. Can't believe I did this. And then the next week, the same thing happened again. And amazingly, it happened three times. And uh, it was actually his ex said to him, what, what, do you, what, what are you doing? Do you want your kids to hate you? And I was talking to him about this, and I was like, I think you want your kids to hate you. I actually think she's right. You know, because you don't forget to meet me, and I know you care so much more about your kids than me. You know, these kids are the most important thing. And why do you not forget to go to work? Why do you not forget to meet friends? You know, so in other words, there's not a mental issue. What if you so hate yourself, but you don't know you? So he was avoiding, like he was always partying, he was always out, always talking, but you scratched beneath the surface and he hated himself. And he was full of self-doubt and self-loathing that was hard to see. And so what was strangely happening was somehow he wanted his kids to feel about him the way that he felt about himself, but Ooh. couldn't express. And, yeah, and in that conversation, all we were trying to do was cultivate a curiosity about a simple action. Now, it's not a simple action. It's quite a strange action. But still, at the same time, people could write it off. Oh, I just forgot. I just forgot. Yeah, yeah. And even the first time was weird. Yeah. And then, you know, it repeats and you go, okay, it's really weird. It's really weird. <laughs> so that's what, that's what this is about. It's mm. going like, oh, when you cannot speak the truth, the truth finds a way to speak. But if you cannot put it into words, if you cannot bring it into consciousness, it will consume you. Mm. you know, it, will, it will damage you. Uh, I have a friend who's a therapist who sort of lives and breathes this stuff, and he's mm. taught me a lot. Um, but just paying attention to these sort of reactions and habits and symptoms and, you know, outward manifestations of things. And uh, to a certain extent, it's made him and me, I hope that's proper grammar, sort of a high-maintenance relationship. Uh, We're yeah. constantly exploring these things uh, with each yeah. other. And people are always rolling their eyes, and we always have to go on a walk and have a deep talk about something someone said. And <laughs> to us, it feels fun. Yeah. But uh, we often have friends, guy friends in particular, who will say... I don't know why I'm pointing guys. It just happens to be guys because, yeah. Um, I don't think we're as complicated as you two. Uh, yeah. We're like, I mean, you could make the case that sometimes we may overdo it in terms of uh, overanalyzing. Yeah. But I, I want to be like, yeah, you, you're, you're just as complicated. I notice you're doing things too. And yeah. I don't call it out every time. But yeah, well, we all have these weird quirks that pop up. And this, this is an interesting. Or do you want to? No, no, no. Because no, yeah. yeah, this is an interesting point because there's two, because on the on the other side of this, it might sound like initially that I'm saying uh, that uh, you know thinking a lot about stuff and why people act the way they do and why I act the way I do is kind of like the the better action. But here's the funny thing about power practices because there is and it's not it's a kind of like a tendency and we can talk about the different types of neurosis that manifest in gender. Mm. Um, interestingly, psychosis and perversion. Well, psychosis is generally not very gendered. Mm. There's, there's many men and women seem to suffer from psychosis. From what I know from talking to analysts, neurosis manifests differently. Not mm. a lot, but a lot of men will be more obsessive. Mm. Uh, a lot of women be more hysteric. That's mm. the traditional mm. terms for it. But they're just both two different forms of neurosis, but they manifest differently. And so me some men will tend to kind of 
not have any access to their emotions and not feel very much, not think they're feeling very much, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then that's not, it's not completely gendered. But then uh, some people are like, they're not in touch. And then some people are very in touch and they talk about things. But the funny thing about talking about things is that can be just as um, uh, avoidant Mm. of power praxis because mm. uh, I think Freud called it chimney sweeping where someone talks and talks and talks but actually there's something always being missed you mm. never feel that you're getting to what they're saying and this is why power praxis is so important because what a power praxis is is when an analyst is listening to you they're not really listening to what you're saying mm. right whether you're quiet or whether you're talking you know dime a dozen right what they're looking for is the point when you hesitate or when you make a slip of the tongue, where you say one name instead of a, your mother, right? <laughs> instead of another, mm -hmm. um, you or you, um, uh, you, your mind suddenly goes blank. What they're looking for is the anomaly, and then they dig into that, and that's this. That's that's the small thing, mm. and so that's kind of is right for everybody. It's like, oh yeah, we can avoid confronting our own desires and our own beliefs through not having a very kind of complex emotional life. But actually, we can avoid our own desires and our own beliefs and our own fears and wishes by talking a lot about mm. our emotional life. Oh, like, they're weirdly both... sounds like me. <laughs> they can both be hidden. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I see it. I've been seeing a therapist for a while who's a psychoanalyst, and that's, oh, that that's rings true. I'll, I'll talk and talk and talk, and he'll just be listening, and then I'll often do a, a deep sigh and sort of look out the window sort of lost in that. He'll go, what, you know, he'll catch what, what are you doing? What yes. is that? Where'd you go? You know, I'm like, Oh, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Cause we have to be detectives. Mm -hmm. That's like, because in a detective novel you have, you say Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. and Watson. The idea is that they're, my favorite's Columbo. I'm a huge oh, Columbo yeah. fan. I love Columbo. Right? <laughs> and you know, Columbo comes into the scene of a crime. Always kind of clueless. Clu but clueless, not, yeah. doesn't, but not, but yeah. completely knowing, and always knowing right from the beginning. Like as soon as he walks into the crime scene, he knows how, who did it. Yeah, right. Yeah. He just has to prove it. It's a very genius uh, show. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you've got you've got the, the scene, the crime scene, and it's being cultivated in such a way that it tells a certain story, and everybody else around him, all the police officers, the detectives, they all see the the continuity. Right. Oh, look at this. This person died. Right. They're a smoker. Right. They smoke 20 a day. And look at this. This uh, uh, in the office, a cigarette fell onto the ground and it set fire to the office and the guy died. Then Columbo comes in and he looks around and he sees what everybody else sees. But he sees the small thing. He sees the anomaly. Mm. He picks up a cigarette and he looks at it and he says, look at this cigarette. What do you see? And he shows them the, the mm -hmm. butt, uh, the filter. And the person will say, I don't see anything. And Columbo will say, well, exactly. Uh, when you smoke a cigarette, you inhale. And when you inhale, you'll get a stain of tar on the filter. Mm. This cigarette has no stain on the filter. That means someone has lit these cigarettes and let them burn a non-smoker to make it look like there is... <laughs> Uh, there was yeah. a, a cigarette <laughs> so fire, right? So what, what Columbo does mm. is he ignores all of the mm. stuff that everyone can see. And just like Sherlock Holmes, the same thing, sees the anomaly. There's a famous one, Slavio Shizeka philosopher talks about, um, it's a story called, I forget what it's called, but a racehorse is stolen. And uh, 
Sherlock Holmes says to Watson, that's ah, a curious case about the dog. And Watson says, what do you mean? Like, the dog didn't do anything. And Watson says, or sorry, and Sherlock Holmes says, well, that's the curious case. Because, of course, if someone's mm-hmm. stealing a horse, the dog would bark. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the curious case, it's called the curious case of the dog in the night. I think that's how he mm-hmm. says it. Mm-hmm. It's a curious case of the dog in the night. And Watson <laughs> says, what? There was no dog barking or doing anything in the night. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's, that's what the analyst is looking mm-hmm. for, to cultivate a curiosity for the small things that actually open up uh, more about who mm-hmm. we are than we could have ever discovered by looking at everything else. Because we are a crime scene. Our Facebook page is a cultivated oh. Photoshop version of ourselves, you know? <laughs> now everybody's going to be paranoid about posting. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> and Instagram even yeah. more so. Yeah, yeah. so it's like, it's like you don't know yourself through looking at your Instagram post. Yeah. But the truth is, in your Instagram post, if someone posts 10 pictures of them and their partner uh, in loving embrace... Um, then you know, that speaks something, not the content, but the form. Why did you put 10 pictures of you and your partner in a row in a loving embrace? Not, it doesn't always mean this, but of course one has to wonder whether there's something wrong, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to hide from themselves. Um, so again, it's not the content, it's the form, it's the small thing, it's the thing that you don't notice that, that might lead to the truth. Yeah, I think you said something... What- years ago that I picked up on, which was just the nature of defensiveness. If, if somebody said, you know, you have a problem with alcohol and you go, no, I don't. I haven't been drinking that much. That's not true defensiveness. Yes. It's the person that just walks in a room and starts saying, I don't have a problem with alcohol. And you're like, nobody said you did. Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. denial. Like people think, yeah. well, how, do, how, how is denial? Because of course, if, if, if someone says, are you an alcoholic? And I say, no, well, is that denial? Yeah. And it's like, it's, no, it's when I don't ask you if you're an alcoholic <laughs> and you go, I'm not an alcoholic or anything. I just brought a few beers. <laughs> so yeah, denial uh, is when you uh, overly yeah. deny something that I never asked you to deny. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay. I want to honor your time. Uh, I guess maybe two things to wrap up. Oh yeah. Um, one is, would you have any practical advice for people to discover some of these symptoms or ticks in their daily life? Yeah, well, to be honest, you know, listen to your podcast in a sense. Right. If you, yeah, you took a, a pitch yeah, there you one. go. I'm giving you a pitch, <laughs> but you you took a book that I think's very a, a really yeah. lovely book, well written, yeah. simple, uh, and yet profound. Mm-hmm. And from what you were saying there, is, did you do a chapter, a podcast? Or we, something? We've done four episodes. We do two defense mechanisms an episode. Oh right, yeah. so you're still not finished the series? Yeah, we've done eight defense mechanisms. Oh, so, very yeah. good. So well, that to be honest, then that sounds like a wonderful way yeah. to learn about That's this. That's great. Yeah. Okay, good pitch yeah. to go back and listen to our defense mechanisms episode. Okay, uh, so one thing question, we yeah. said we talk about is oh, yeah. Enneagram. <laughs> and Enneagram episodes every five episodes. That's right. And people always bring this up in a very cryptic way, like, oh, don't get him started on Enneagram. That's right. I like I like that there's this thing going around now about my kind of critique of the Enneagram. It's like, don't talk about the Enneagram when Pete's around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, I didn't. I have no personal investment oh, yeah, in Enneagram. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would love for you to sound oh, yeah. off on the Enneagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, and there's always, the, with anything like this, there's two levels. There's yeah. one which is... Um, Things like the Enneagram can be very helpful or Myers-Briggs or whatever. Like, you know, it can be useful. Mm -hmm. Like there's lots of things that can be useful. But then, of course, there's there's an asking more philosophical questions and uh, more psychoanalytic questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, the Enneagram comes from an an interesting kind of tradition. We don't know very much about the tradition, but from what we can tell, 
Uh, let me try and get this right. Uh, it seems to be, and you would know, you seem to know more about this, but that, you know, we all leave the oneness of heaven, of, mm. of, of like pure being, mm. and enter the world through a gate. Mm. And when we enter through a gate, uh, there's something that we, that, that kind of like dictates a little bit about who we are mm. and also a weakness that we have. And and in order to kind of return to that kind of wholeness that we had, we need to come to terms with that weakness. Yeah, that, we that had. sounds yeah. good. This so far, that oh, is sounds that? Yeah. not like the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the the thing is, like my work, and this is actually a good pitch for me. No, yeah, I agree. Great. I give Everybody you a good pitch. So here's Peter. my pitch. Um, here's the thing, like what we're talking about here. That's beautiful. We're, like honestly, I wish you guys could see this. We're sitting by an open fire. I'll take a picture of us before. Yeah, then, that's yeah. great. But it won't really capture it. It's kind of yeah. is magical. Yeah. Um, we're sitting here and we're talking about how do we cultivate this curiosity? How do we, how do the small things actually speak the big truths? And how can that even, you know, we've even touched on how that can uh, be, uh, have political and social uh, consequences. Just touched on these things. My main interest in this is actually that it has philosophical import. These things can actually help us understand the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. They can help us understand uh, how to live a good life. Um, it's not just therapeutic at all. In fact, I, so I came through uh, the, the theory, the philosophy and theology and, and other kind of disciplines. So I'm making a claim that the conflicts that we have within our lives reflect something of reality itself. There's something conflictual about reality. Mm. There is something of a deadlock or contradiction that is part of the very structure of the universe. Now, we can't get into, obviously, the ins and outs of that. (laughs) But my argument is that there's something about the universe and our place in it that is about lack. It is about that it's not about trying to have organic wholeness. Because every time you try to find organic wholeness, there's always someone who's disturbing it, who we have to get rid of. (laughs) If we only get rid of the immigrants or the Republicans or whatever it is, then everything will be great. And um, uh, my work is about exploring what you see in existentialism, psychoanalysis, and radical theology. This notion that, that we actually have to come to terms with this nothingness, this lack. Uh, what's called original sin, actually, in scholastic theology or scholastic philosophy. And so I'm always wary of talk of wholeness. Mm. That's getting to it. That was a long answer to go. That like, makes sense. Makes sense. So when, when I hear, and, and when I t- that's why, you know, Jung is someone who, you know, I'm critical of, although I think he's a very good writer yeah. and I think he's, he has a, he's a expansive knowledge of mythology. But I see within certain... Uh, you know, the New Age system Mm -hmm. within paganism, within Gnosticism, within um, uh, Enneagram kind of maybe fuzziness, also within a lot of confessional Christianity, not radical Christianity, confessional Christianity. There is this notion of a wholeness that we start to pursue. And my concern is the more that we pursue wholeness and completeness, the more damage we can do. Mm. And Mm. so the Enneagram isn't necessarily like, an extreme version of that. But if we were discussing it in more depth, I would uh, want to talk a little bit about that and talk a little bit about the unconscious mm. because that's the other thing that um, I'm interested in and I'm I'm not... The unconscious is basically the name for the fact that we don't know ourselves, that we are not at one with ourselves, that we are in conflict with ourselves. 
And so the unconscious is basically what means that we can, we can never really know ourselves, which means any system that tries to kind of pin down who you are feels because the unconscious is in a sense a mechanism that means you, you're never who you are. Hmm. You're, the existentialists talk about this, Sartre talks about it, that if you think you're a waiter, you're wrong. You're not a waiter. You're playing the role of a waiter. Right. And he calls it bad faith. Um, but even more weirdly, when we try to define ourselves, we uh, miss something very fundamental. But hey, listen, you're trying to get people to hate me because people are listening. No, to I, no, most of, loads of my friends are no. really into the Enneagram. No, I mean, we, I we, we wouldn't treat the Enneagram. I think we treat it with curiosity and we hold it lightly and use it as a tool. And I think you're saying something too that is a word of caution. I mean, I think oftentimes you refer to sort of the oceanic oneness or the yeah. desire to turn out. And, and in Enneagram language, people use this concept of essence mm-hmm. that like we come from this place of essence. And we're trying to get back to that. Yes. Um, and, and, and to maybe you can combine the things. I don't know if it's even possible, but to say like, no, we're not trying to get back to some sort of original blissful state. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and if you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. And, oh, and, and by the way, the other thing, which is a great thing to model here, is exactly what we've been talking about is um, genuine, like, like we can disagree, in, but not, oh, yeah, di- yeah. not disagree in a, in a, oh, we disagree, but in a... Peter's in a very threatening sense. In a threatening right sense. Now, yeah. Yes, I, yeah, I mean, I'm about to punch the guy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but we could kind of, in a really, in a hopefully a mutually... Uh, beneficial way yeah. and we don't model that enough I mean that's one yeah. of my concerns about the current culture wars mm-hmm. is that we're we're finding it increasingly difficult to know how to have conflict and I mean real conflict I'm from Northern Ireland so I like I we, we we're we're lo- we're fighters not lovers mm-hmm. right we go to the bar <laughs> we have a few drinks we love each other than the French yeah that's yeah. it yeah a few more drinks we're fighting yeah. and at the end of the night it's like see him again next week see him again next yeah. week right yeah. so we love a good old brawl <laughs> and um I I I live for that mm. so you know <laughs> the, the idea well, you're not of, you're not completely freaked out by the idea of conflict that's oh not at all blood. No, it's in, yeah, it's kind of funnily for good and for bad. Yeah. My goodness, there's a lot of, <laughs> in Northern Ireland, we're very self-destructive people. Yeah. A friend of mine, he's an analyst, he said that we notice in Northern Ireland, we really celebrate self-destructiveness, particularly with alcohol. Mm-hmm. If someone gets really drunk and falls over and hurts themselves, <laughs> we all think it's brilliant. In, yeah, yeah, including the person themselves, you know. <laughs> oh, and, uh, you know, that you see that a little bit in other cultures, but it's a very strong element of our culture well my i came to wake my first night in belfast i was just walking around downtown probably like one in the morning because i was jet lagged by myself oh yeah and it was just like well everything they say is true i mean the streets were packed people were yelling pushing each other oh, running yeah. around i was like wow this yeah is, there it is we're in the irish bars we're right in the now. irish bars and yeah. hopefully friends i like what i oh they're friendly oh, i, I yeah. mean two two people came up and kissed me on the cheek it was oh, just like yeah. like that's the reason why i love bringing people here i mean there's you know i love i love this city yeah. and i i <laughs> live in america and i live in los angeles most of the year but um i love bringing people to belfast because it used to be such a place of conflict mm-hmm. and but it's the friendliest place, and I love people coming out and going around the bars and the coffee shops. And and uh, uh, we're we're not friendly to ourselves, but we're friendly to everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope yeah, yeah, it was a good experience. Well, I think something about your work. We were talking about this, and I know I'm, I am wrapping up. But I, uh, we were talking about your debate with Lawrence Krauss, <laughs> and I do remember that being so. I think just to highlight what you're saying proves true. First of all, it's been hard for me to find any place in your public life where you've gotten into like an actual. Mm. toxic fight with someone whether on a podcast or publicly and i think there's something 
sort of habitual in, in people that consume media that we want to find the fight. Yes. And we want to find a, a, some clip of Peter losing it. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think that was so refreshing because I had at that time in my life, I don't know how long ago that was, like six or seven years ago you did that, but um, I had been on a binge of watching the circuit, so to speak, of William Lane Craig and Peter Dawkins and Richard Richard Dawkins, Peter Hitchens, all oh, those yeah. people. Um and w- doing the debate. And it's always like a strong Christian guy with a strong atheist guy and a complete deadlock. Yeah. And your debate was the first time I'd ever seen you defuse the entire system. <laughs> like every, everything he had to throw at you, you're like, yeah, absolutely. Oh no, it's true. It's a good point. And oh, I'm, I didn't like that. And yeah, you're like that. And it was like, he was like, wait, what? Yeah. Where's the fight? Where am I? You know? And it was, it was like, I don't know. It's like a ma- it's like a magic trick, you know, which is oh, what you wow. talk about. Oh yeah, it was a fun time. That yeah. was a strange and bizarre. And it's <laughs> funny people bring that to be it up sometimes, and part of me is like, I hope no one looks it up. Now that I've said that, people yeah. will look it up. But actually, it was um, yeah, it was my attempt to try to defuse what a debate is, yeah, and to go like you know, let's try and reason together and. It, it was, uh, yeah, so it was it was an attempt to do something else. And yeah. I don't know how successful it was, but it was at least fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up obviously religious. I've been a, a Christian pastor my whole life. And I think even to your point of using in that debate, you're saying, you know, if you're if you're going to be bigoted, bigoted, you can use religion to be bigoted or you can use, use atheism to be bigoted or to scapegoat. Yeah. And I think it's the same with Enneagram. It's like, oh, you can just go from Christianity to Enneagram and, and you get, you get your whole identity wrapped up in this system. Yeah. It's like, I'm not the Enneagram. Yeah. You can, you can badmouth the Enneagram all day. I'm like, that's yeah. not my thing. I'm like, I like yes. talking about it, but like, and you've touched on something actually really important to me is that, that my concern is that we can move from one. So kind of religious conversion is moving from one worldview to another. Yeah. So you move from one thing to another, but so you change what you believe, but not how you believe it. So the way you believe it remains unchanged. It's just, so on the surface, everything's changed, but the way that you relate to your beliefs is the same. For me, uh, a religionless conversion, true conversion, is a conversion from the need of conversion. It mm-hmm. is, it is the point when you don't necessarily change your position, but the way you enact your position is different. And take the example of a relationship. You know, people break up, but often people break up, and then they go out with somebody, somebody completely different, but they have the same type of relationship that they did before. So they enact all of the same issues. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people need to break up, not with the person but with the type of relationship they have with the person. And that's weird. So weirdly, you go like, we need to break up, but not us. Not We don't have to break up. We have to break up with the type of relationship yeah, we have. Oh, that makes so much sense. So that a lot of this is sadly, and I've seen it a lot, like uh, the, the hippies in uh, it was the 1960s, a lot of them became the Jesus freaks because, you know, the LSD dream wasn't really working. They wanted to get high on drugs and then high on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> and now that's kind of reversing. A lot of Christians are going, you know, into, you know, chemical enlightenment and also in other ways, but also into technology, getting high with technology, mm. escaping death mm. through the possibility of, of uh, transhumanism, et cetera. Um, and for my whole thing is like when we move from one thing to another, we often change everything but the most important thing, which is the modality of belief. And for me, what's most important is a transformation in the way that we desire, in the way that we enact our lives, the way in which we engage with each other. Um, the other stuff and, and isn't so important. And, and actually, Paul Tillich talks about this, the difference between a broken myth and an unbroken myth. An unbroken myth is where you think what you believe is completely true. 
And if that lets you down, which eventually it probably will, you know, with enough time, um, then you might be tempted to go to another unbroken myth. And now this is the answer. Now I find the other, the next guru, right? But Tillich says, well, what's more important is that you go from a broken myth to an unbroken myth. So you learn to embrace an, a story that is true in its fracturedness, that it becomes iconic, really. An mm. icon is a physical thing that, that, that draws you into something invisible. So that's, that's why I'm concerned about not the, the anything. Like you could, my work, I do pyrotheology. Someone can, can convert to pyrotheology, think that I've got the answer. Well, that's a disaster. You're the guru. I'm the guru. <laughs> so I want to be the last guru. Yeah. As in, I want to let people down so badly that they realize <laughs> not only does my system not work, but that no system works. And therefore, they're able to learn to live in the frailty and the beauty and the fracturedness of reality. Mm. That's the last guru. You're, you really let us down on this podcast. Report. Thank you. Like, I've really you let you down this week. Is that right? <laughs> no. You're like, you traveled all the way to Ireland. <laughs> yep, yep, this was terrible. <laughs> oh, man, it is so good, though. It's so good to, um, uh, I, I think it was, I mean, I, I had done that course with you on Paul Tillich's Courage to Be, and I forget the phrase, but it all culminates essentially in him saying, you, you discover God when God dies in your anxiety, essentially. Yes, and uh, meaninglessness. Like, yeah. I can't remember the exact quote, but yeah, it's a beautiful last yeah. quote. And it's, it takes the whole book to unpack it. Right. And it uh, took us, but it actually is, it's a deep, you kind of know it's deeply profound when you read it, but you don't, the first time you read it, you don't know why it's profound. You go like, oh, that's weird. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't know why. It's and like a magical language. sentence at the very end, and you're like, what? Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's amazing. Like, I know there's something in that. Yeah. Uh, and it takes weeks of unpacking mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, this next podcast will unpack there that. Is. That would be so fun. Great. I've had a great time. This yeah, this so has much been fun. so good. Um, I would say, do you, oftentimes you have like these memorized little blessings that you'll end some of your things with. Do you remember any of them? Oh, you know, well, uh, let me see if I can remember one that was written by Padre Gutuma, who's a great Irish poet and is here actually yeah. at Spark and is doing a, uh, some of the stuff here. And it's, it's, a, it's a benediction that he wrote for a community called Icon that yeah. I was part of. Because the Catholic Church ends with a benediction, go in peace. And so Podrick wrote this blessing for us. And uh, I told it as I went around America, but I haven't said it for a year. So let's see if it's just in there as muscle okay. memory. Okay. Um, goes like this. The task has ended. Go in pieces. Our faith has been rear-ended. Certainty amended. And something might be mended that we didn't know was torn. And we are fire, bright burning fire, turning from the higher places from which we fell, entering into the hell in which we'll find our loving and beloved mother, brother, sister, father, friend. And so, friends, the task has ended. Go in pieces to see and feel your world. <laughs>